You've probably heard the common refrain. The EU is a technocracy. The EU isn't democratic. The Brussels bureaucrats are imposing their laws on us. But is this true? In this series, we will explore the role of the EU's institutions and their impact on our everyday lives. We'll discuss elements of the process where there's more democracy than you might expect, and areas where the Union deserves criticism. This is a journey through the policy-making process, across the European continent, and to the very heart of the European project. This is EU Democracy Explained. Over the coming weeks, we'll follow this thread through the so-called Institutional Triangle where we'll discover how democracy plays its part in the work of three key EU institutions that produce policies applying throughout the EU. The European Commission, the Council of the European Union, and the European Parliament. We'll also take a look at the European Council and its important role. On our journey, we'll learn more about how each of them works, we'll delve into detail about what democracy actually is and how it works in Europe, and we'll ask ourselves... What makes the EU democratic? But before all that, let's start at the beginning with a very unique institution, the European Commission. The European Commission defends the common interests of the EU's member states. In order to do this, it holds the sole right of initiative to propose new legislation. It acts as the so-called guardian of the treaties and it fulfills a number of executive functions. So it drafts policy proposals for new laws and the draft EU budget. It's responsible for making sure that all EU countries properly apply EU law and in a context where the EU is increasingly seeking to assert itself on the world stage, the Commission also holds important responsibilities in representing the EU globally in areas such as trade, among others. In other words, the European Commission represents the interests of the EU as a whole. It all started in 1952 with the supranational high authority of the European coal and steel community, the modern Commission's earliest ancestor. In this era, we also see the creation of two other institutions, the Council of Ministers, which represents national governments, and the Consultative European Parliamentary Assembly. Keep those names in mind. We'll come back to them when we discuss the modern Council of the European Union and European Parliament. And from then right up until the modern day, the system has been developing. The 1957 Treaty of Rome created two new communities, the European Economic Community and Eurotom, each with their own equivalents of the high authority. In 1967, the merger treaty combined these disparate institutions into one, the Commission of the European Communities. In 1974, the heads of state and government created the European Council, which developed over the years into being the EU's agenda setter. And in 1979, the first European elections took place granting greater democratic legitimacy to the European Parliament. Subsequent developments, including the 1992 Maastricht Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty, which has been in force since 2009, complete the picture to where we find ourselves today. The modern European Commission is a juggernaut, with over 30,000 staff working in several directorates general, tasked with developing policy proposals in a number of areas. It's headed by a president and steered by a college of commissioners, each responsible for different policy areas. So there's a commissioner for jobs and social rights, for budget and administration, as well as for health and food safety, crisis management, and many more. But the decisions are always taken by the college as a whole. The president is designated via an approval process involving the European Council and the European Parliament, 
and the College of Commissioners currently holds one commissioner from each of the 27 EU member states. We'll come back to these details later on, because they're important when considering how European democracy plays a part. But first, let's focus on the European Commission and how it fits into the wider EU system. The European Union is complex, and from the outside it can seem intimidating. The first step towards understanding how it functions is by looking at what's called the Institutional Triangle. The Triangle is where European legislation gets made, with the Commission representing the EU's common interest, Council of the European Union representing the national governments, and the European Parliament representing European citizens. In line with the ordinary legislative procedure, the process is launched by a proposal from the Commission, but no proposal can become a law unless it has the support both of the Council and of the Parliament, which each have specific rules dictating how they vote. In some areas, the procedure doesn't apply, and the Council decides alone, with only a consultative role for the Parliament. And in others, like the Common Foreign and Security Policy and the Common Security and Defence Policy, the Council decides, but the Commission has no exclusive right of initiative. It's a complex picture for sure, and one which we'll explore throughout this series. But the headline is this. The Institutional Triangle ensures that the Commission's draft proposals remain in the EU's general interest, and that they can't become law unless the bodies representing national interests and citizens' interests agree or at least have a say. Thus, the Union is imbued with a dual legitimacy, granted by the 27 governments in the Council, democratically elected at national level, and by European citizens, who directly elect their representatives in the Parliament. Let's also bring in the European Council. Now, having a European Council and a Council of the European Union can be a bit confusing because their names, after all, do sound very similar. But that's a story for another time. For now, the key takeaway is that the European Council is a body made up of the heads of state or government of the EU27, while the Council of the European Union is made up of ministers from those governments. While the Council works in the institutional triangle to review and approve Commission proposals, the European Council isn't involved in making legislation. Instead, it sets the agenda and political direction of the EU, so it has a crucial voice in the key developments in Europe. There are a number of other institutions that work in the EU process. The European Court of Justice settles legal disputes and, importantly, holds primacy over national law in areas where the EU has been empowered to make decisions. Financial management is independently supervised by the European Court of Auditors, and the European Central Bank is on hand to make sure the Eurozone remains strong enough to support the EU's economic policies. And even beyond this, there are more specialised entities, like the European Economic and Social Committee and the Committee of the Regions, that all have a role to play. The European project has thus developed a complex system of institutions and bodies accountable to each other, representing all the main interests they need to represent in order to claim a legitimate mandate to govern, and ensuring the policies which are eventually adopted are fed by proper expertise. But there's more to the concept of democratic accountability. So let's delve deeper into what it is, why it's so important, and let's see how it applies to the European Commission. Accountability in a democracy is crucial. Without mechanisms to ensure those in power are held to a proper code of ethics and good governance, there would be no limits placed on what they could do. Accountability serves to ensure a number of things, including that public resources are used properly, corruption is stamped out, and fundamental rights are respected. 
In other words, accountability protects a democracy. Now, there are plenty of different ways of achieving accountability, and the unique EU system has a correspondingly unique approach. But the core principles remain the same. The most well-known form of accountability is that which takes place between citizens and policymakers, what we might term vertical accountability. At its most basic, citizens who elect their representatives can register their discontent by choosing a different representative at the next election, or by recall. So, having democratic or electoral legitimacy can go a long way to forming vertical accountability. But that isn't the only way. Letter-writing campaigns, town hall events, protest movements and so on can all be considered as examples of this type of accountability. On the other hand, you can't rely on vertical accountability as the only method of holding those in power to account. For instance, if voter turnout at an election happens to be very low, then the very fact that so few citizens vote actually undermines the quality of accountability they generate. Similarly, if policymakers don't take citizens' preferences into account when making policy, that also undermines the quality of accountability. This is a risk that applies to all the different forms of accountability between citizens and policymakers. If no one is engaged, there is no vertical accountability. Because of this, a healthy democracy also has what we might call horizontal or institutional accountability, a set of systematic checks and balances. These can take the form of oversight mechanisms between the legislative and executive branches, internal working practices that require legislators to adhere to certain rules, even something as basic as having a competent civil service can offer a form of institutional accountability, insofar as it remains in the system as ballast through successive administrations. Finally, judicial oversight is another crucial form of institutional accountability, and there are many more beyond this. So how does all this apply to the Commission, and to the EU as a whole? Let's start with vertical accountability. One of the main critiques coming from those who insist on the caricature of Brussels bureaucrats is that there is no accountability to or representation of the electorate in the European Commission, that there is no vertical accountability. Now, while it is true that the President of the Commission is not a directly elected position in the same way that, for instance, the President of France is, we have to remember that the EU is not a country and the Commission is not a government. Nonetheless, the Commission President is closer to the citizens than the caricatures would have you believe. Each new President is nominated by the heads of state or government in the European Council. These are the people at the heads of the 27 national governments, all of whom carry a national-level electoral mandate. And the appointment, along with the appointment of the College of Commissioners, must follow a process of parliamentary approval. In addition, the European Council's nomination must take into account the European elections. These rules are all set out in detail in the European treaties to ensure each Commission President holds a solid democratic mandate according to the principle of dual legitimacy. Citizens have a say first because their national governments nominate the candidate, and second because their representatives in the Parliament, democratically elected via pan-European elections, have final approval. All this being said, the appointment of the Commission President is still problematic for some who would prefer an alternate, more direct method. And we'll explore an example of this, the controversial Spitzenkandidaten proposal, in an upcoming episode. In a sense, though, whether you agree with those concerns or not, it's all the more reason why the institutional checks and balances, the horizontal accountability, is crucial to the EU system.
and the Commission is horizontally accountable in a variety of ways. In fact, horizontal accountability is really where the EU comes into its own. Take as an example the fact that the Commission, as set out in the European treaties, is a body responsible to the European Parliament. Part of this dynamic between the two institutions is that the Parliament holds crucial oversight powers over the Commission. The Commission submits an annual general report to the Parliament, for instance, and when asked by Parliament to submit a legislative proposal, the Commission must either do so or provide a written justification as to why it's chosen not to. The most significant of all the Parliament's oversight powers, though, is a motion of censure, which you might think of as being like an impeachment clause. If the Parliament votes by a two-thirds majority, the Commission as a whole is forced to resign. Up until today, eight motions of censure have been brought before the Parliament, but none have crossed that crucial two-thirds threshold. Even beyond the oversight mechanisms described in the treaties, there's more. For instance, a common practice has developed where the Commission President gives an annual State of the Union-style address to MEPs. You can see then that the Commission formally being responsible to the Parliament is a fact that is taken very seriously. The institutional accountability of the European Commission isn't limited to the Parliament's powers, though. The Council of the European Union can also ask the Commission to submit a legislative proposal just like the Parliament. The European Court of Auditors has oversight of the way the Commission handles the EU budget, producing an annual report on this. The European Court of Justice can take action against the Commission if it finds that the institution has acted against EU law. Finally, the European Commission has extensive internal policies and working practices which supplement this horizontal accountability. From wide-ranging freedom of information rights for citizens, regular consultations, an open transparency register for interest groups, and much more. Many people find it difficult to see how democracy weaves its way in and out of the European Commission, and it's often much easier to paint with a broad brush. As we've seen, though, the EU structure does give a dual legitimacy to the appointment of the Commission, and also holds significant oversight via a number of avenues over its functioning. Nonetheless, many still feel there are critiques to be made. We may have horizontal accountability, but is the Commission's vertical accountability flawed? And, in the end, what does this mean for the ultimate question of whether the European Commission is democratic? This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The views and opinions expressed are, however, those of the authors only and do not necessarily reflect those of the European Union or European Education and Culture Executive Agency. Neither the European Union nor the Granting Authority can be held responsible for them.